Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans nearly three decades from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Barack Obama in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Live your life. That's what they're talking about right now. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome to the show. Welcome again to another edition of Black Politics Today. I want to thank you for joining us tonight and uh, really just uh, talk about, you know what? Hey, there's so many things going on that we have to be paying, we have to pay attention to that uh, we have to realize that there are issues that are impacting our community, the African-American community each and every day all over the place. And unfortunately, uh, people aren't talking about everything that's impacting us. People aren't talking about, you know, what's really the the root causes of the issues that we have to deal with and, and all the areas that we have to be uh, impacted by. People aren't telling us that, you know, you know, things are going to, you know, get worse before they get better, so to speak, or things are, you know, going to have their issues uh, with us uh, for, you know, for a time to come. And unfortunately, you know, we live in our life like everything is cool and everything is great. And for most of you, I hope it is. But there is a great swath of folks out there that, you know, it's not that way for them. And that's unfortunate. And because of that, we have to address those issues. 
And before I get too deep in, too detailed into all that discussion, I always pause and thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just for allowing me to host this show, to host this broadcast, and to be on the air uh, with you each and every week, and to essentially just, you know, reach out across the globe um, and discuss the issues that are impacting African Americans uh, the most, in, in my opinion, socially, economically, and politically. And so each week, we you know, we try to address those issues. Each week, we try to look at it and talk about what it is and talk about something positive. And then we have to ask ourselves, what's at stake for us? And ultimately, at the end of the day, there's always something at stake for you and your family. And once you identify what that is, you have to be able to get up every morning, each and every day, and go out there and do something about it. So I want to uh, uh, thank God just for allowing me to have this broadcast, for, for allowing us to do what we do, to reach out the way we are and to, you know, start, you know, having people recognize what we're doing, uh, realize that what we're doing is, is uh, you know, I don't want to say an anomaly, but it's everybody's not doing it the way we're doing it. And for that, I'm grateful uh, for the vision and I'm grateful for the seeds that God has planted in me to do it this way. And so I'm, I'm excited to continue to move forward and to, to move to a new level and a new uh, uh, um, idea of what we should be talking about and what we should be discussing. Because black politics today, we have to recognize what the politics are for our community. And we have to recognize that we have to participate in that. And it goes beyond voting. <clears throat> it goes beyond voting and, and just sitting there saying, well, I didn't like this person or I didn't like that person or or that person doesn't motivate me. No one has to motivate you for yourself to maintain your own livelihood and your life. If anybody has to motivate you to do that, then clearly there's something wrong with you. Uh, because I don't need somebody to motivate me to make sure that my lights stay on or that my mortgage gets paid or that my children eat or that they're safe and that they can come home, go to school, or go where they're going, and I can go where I want to go and be safe. No one has to motivate me for that. And if you need somebody to motivate you to vote and to hope that the policies that they enact are to your benefit, then you got issues. You got a problem. Uh, you need more than just motivation because clearly your great grandparents and your parents, that should have been motivation enough seeing what they went through and the struggles that they had to know that, you know what, you need to participate in this situation uh, and this process than sitting back saying, oh, it doesn't matter to me. Because quite frankly, if you're in the situation that we're going to be talking about tonight, it matters to you and you need to understand it and you need to be, be a part of it. Like they say, you're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Which one is it? And this past week uh, was the 49th Annual Congressional Black Caucus Legislative Conference and Black Politics Today, we held and hosted our second annual It's About Us Awards reception and we were fortunate and, and, and honored to be able to host that at the Embassy of the Republic of South Africa, at the South African Embassy uh, here in Washington, D.C. And, and it was a, I mean, I didn't get to enjoy it as much as everyone else did. But from all accounts, from everyone that's uh, spoken to me, sent me text messages, uh, called me or sent me emails, they loved the event. They were very uh, pleased with it. They loved the venue. Uh, everything about it was well. The, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they were just excited and happy, and I'm excited that they were excited and happy about it. We honored a number of members uh, from the Black community, 
for their commitment and dedication and service to better our community. Uh, we recognized our trailblazers, our champions, and we presented our Legacy Award, which we do every year uh, in honor of Ron Dellums, <clears throat> uh, who is from California, and uh, we created that award uh, in his passing last year uh, and uh, asked his wife if it's okay if we do that, his widow, and uh, she gave it her, her blessing because we wanted to honor his legacy uh, as the first congressional member from uh, California, but also for the first um, member of Congress to ever have a, a foreign policy veto overridden by Congress of a Republican, um, of any president. But in this case, Ron Dellums did it when Reagan was in office. Ron Dellums was the first African-American appointed to the Armed Services Committee. And the bill that he uh, introduced was a bill to put sanctions on South Africa during apartheid. And so it was only fitting when we held this uh, event at the South African Embassy that it was the Ron Dellums Legacy Award that we were presenting uh, that night and for the work that Ron Dellums did because he started the the power of U.S. sanctions against uh, South Africa, which ultimately uh, grew uh, through the United Nations and ultimately ended apartheid and uh, spearheaded the election of Nelson Mandela. So in, in all accounts, Ron Dellums is single-handedly the person who created that opportunity, started that ball rolling, and ultimately ended up uh, being a part of the freedom of Nelson Mandela and the election of him as president of South Africa. So it was a great honor and privilege for us to host there, to have the uh, the event there, and uh, just exciting, just exciting. I was I was frantic all day and night and didn't really, you know, get around to everyone. So those of you who are listening that I didn't get around to, I want to thank you for coming out. Of course, next year is going to be bigger and better. Uh, we'll, you know, probably do a little bit longer, uh, maybe move it to another day just so we can have an extended period of time just to celebrate, honor, and and uh, rejoice in all the things that we did. One of our awardees uh, was the first elected uh, sheriff of Durham, North Carolina. You've heard him on this broadcast a number of times. He had a regular broadcast every other first Monday here on the show, uh, Sheriff Clarence Burkhead. Uh, who beat out a uh, 14-year Republican, white Republican, who had been in that seat for 14 years and beat him out with 93% of the vote, as he promptly corrected me. As I told I said, told the crowd, it was 91%. He said, no, actually, it was 93%, and I was proud of it. And then we honored, uh, we honored uh, uh, Clarence Burkhead with our Trailblazers Award, award as the first African-American to ever become sheriff in Durham County's 140-year history. And then we recognized uh, uh, Pooh from the hit TV series, HBO hit TV series, uh, The Wire, Trey Chaney. We recognized Trey as uh, uh, our Champions Award, with our Champions Award, and uh, you saw him on The Wire as Pooh, and now he's on uh, Saints and Sinners. And uh, he has a number of projects that he's working on, but I just wanted to honor that brother for his commitment to his art, his craft, and his ministry. He was, he's always working. He's always humble. Whenever I've talked to him, whenever I've had him on the show, he's always been there. And then I saw the uh, post from Idris Elba, um, who uh, put out a post about his work and what he was doing in his new documentary that's coming out. And so I thought it was fitting that we reach out to him and honor him as well. 
And then we closed out the evening with the Legacy Award, the Ron Dellums Legacy Award that we awarded to Congressman Elijah Cummings for his work and what he has done in, in Maryland, even in the midst of the the, the uh, hatred and, and, and uh, bullying that he was getting from uh, Donald Trump. Uh, we had actually uh, decided to honor him prior to that, but then uh, once that happened, it was just even more so that we were going to like make sure that we did something uh, and and honored him and, and put it all together so that we could uh, recognize him. So I just wanted to thank uh, thank each of them, and then also I really want to put out a, a shout out to all of our sponsors who helped us put on the event, Insperity. Uh, Bonner Dental Network, Rockabye Media, and the, the the one team that I really have to thank again and again um, is uh, District Soul Food. District Soul Food, man, they were our ram in the bush uh, last Thursday because unfortunately uh, we weren't able to um, um, have uh, our, our caterer um, provide, our original caterer provide for everything. And uh, District Soul Food uh, came in at the last minute and uh, was able to put everything together for us. And I want everybody to listen to this broadcast if you're in Washington, D.C. And when you come to Washington, D.C., make sure you get over to District Soul Food, 500 8th Street Southeast in Washington, D.C., right there on Capitol Hill. Uh, they are uh, Black-owned, which is uh, incredible, amazing, and they're right there, and they're doing great things. And, in fact, uh, after this broadcast, but certainly sometime during the week, I'm going to put together a little list of folks and we're going to go over there and, and patronize them and support them for all the support that they gave to us uh, and make sure that we're doing, uh, you know, we're, we're helping each other. We're helping black businesses grow. We're helping them sustain themselves and prosper just as you help us here with this radio broadcast and our magazine, uh, which we released our, other, our next printed edition uh, this past Thursday. Uh, certainly, we want you to go online to blackpoliticstoday.com and and get online and and order the uh, uh, subscribe uh, for 2020 and uh, subscribe to the, our publication and help support us to continue to bring the social, economic, and political news to you uh, as often as much as we can. Every other month, uh, we publish and uh, we want to get to a monthly publication. Uh, with your help, we can do it. So tonight, as we look back and look ahead, in fact. One of the things we want to talk about and look at is um, understanding black poverty, because it's real, it's alive, it has never left us. Um, in some cases, it's gotten worse. In other areas, it, you know, it's, it's here or there. But economic poverty remains one of the greatest killers of African Americans. And poverty is an uncomfortable conversation that we have in our black churches, because it seems to disrupt the plan of material prosperity is found in the hierarchy visions of the denominations in the black church. So tonight we're going to talk about black poverty and what our preachers and politicians must address. And this comes directly from uh, this issue of black politics today from uh, one of our contributors who's joining us tonight to discuss and talk about this particular article and the impact and power of this article and how we came about choosing this article to address the social and economic ills of our community. One of the things that we have to understand is that black poverty um, 
has materialized itself within the ministry of our local churches and communities uh, that we serve. And one of the theologians, um, uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, believes that black churches is one is one political institution that is poised to provide liberating service to black people in their bondage of economic depravity. And I found that very interesting that uh, the author uh, wrote it that way because <clears throat> what I believe in, what we're going to ask him tonight, what he's saying about that is how will the black church liberate us? Because a lot of times uh, the, the, the reality is that sometimes, you know, you can't just always wait for God to move. You got to move with God in faith to make sure that you can get what you want uh, and uh, in the way that, you know, God wants you to have it. Because what he always says and what we always quote, you know, faith without works is dead. But there's also some some areas that we have to look at that, you know, the old saying is that God sent the boat, God sent the helicopter, God sent all these things. And the woman and the man is still sitting there saying, well, I'm waiting on God. Well, God's sometimes always waiting on us. So we're going to talk to our author about what black poverty is going to look like. What does it look like right now? Um, what the author uh, 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 Roberts was talking about and how he was, uh, how did he see black poverty and what are some of the things that uh, we can do to address it? So joining us tonight is author and pastor, Dr. Darvin A. Adams, the first. Um, he's going to share excerpts from this art- from his article, uh, Black Poverty. And he is a Ph.D. in theology from Northwestern University. He's a pastor in the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, he was elected to the city council of uh, in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Ward 1 city council member there in Kentucky. Uh, he's a life member of the NAACP and the Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. And he's an award-winning preacher and published writer. He wrote his dissertation on black poverty. And he's the fourth generation funeral director and a family business, Adams and Sons Mortuary. And I want to welcome him to the show today. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Adams. How you doing, Mr. Keller Williams? Thank you so much for having me here this evening. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss a very, very important issue that's plaguing uh, the black communities in the United States. Thank you once again, sir. Absolutely, absolutely. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a call here at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. So let's jump right into it, uh, Pastor. Um, black poverty, because, you know, there's it's interesting that uh, we titled it that way is because I've always talked about the black economy. I said, sure, you know, there sure. is the regular economy, there's right. the white economy, but then there's the black economy, and sure. that always differs from what the real economy is. So talk to me about black poverty. Yeah, yeah. I, I arrived at the, the concept and, and its great interest in, in black poverty many, many years ago as I was studying theology at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. So I went there with an interest in economics, in particular black economics, and so um, in transitioning from Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary to Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary located in the heart 
of Northwestern University in Chicago, I realized that I had to nuance my conversation. I had to be a little bit more particular in, in terms of talking about black economics or economics in a black community. And so, Kelly, the first thing that popped into my mind, the first word, the first concept that popped into my mind was poverty. If poverty. So, you know, if, if, if you would, would peruse, you know, various black communities in the United States of America, and you, you ride through the hood, you ride through the neighborhood, you ride through uh, the projects, you ride through uh, where our local school buildings are, are, are located, the first thing you notice is that our areas, our neighborhoods are sorely impoverished. You know, and, and, and so this notion of poverty has a theological issue. I finished my PhD in theology. Poverty has a theological issue is one that, that kind of awakened my soul to the fact that, that poverty has sociological implications, psychological implications, physical implications, educational implications, implications for a lot of different fields of study. It's an interdisciplinary study, but at the heart of my research and the heart of, of my scholarship, I, I see poverty in the United States has a very difficult and, and debilitating theological issue, especially for black people. So you're right, you know, poverty in the black community is something different from poverty in the white community, which is something different from from, from the normal economy. You know, we've been left right. out of, 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 of economics in the United States for many, many years. When we arrived on American soil four years, 400 years ago, uh, slavery were poor. Why we were slaves, we were poor. And Reconstruction, right. poor. The beginning of the 20th century, poor. World War One, poor. The Great Depression, poor. You know, you know, we our poverty situation has always been in place. This is nothing new for us. I tell people all the time, you know, we we haven't had much. Materially speaking, you know, we haven't had the great homes and the great cars and, and the great bank accounts and the great credit. And certainly we haven't owned a lot of our businesses, but we've had God in our life. And so that's all we've really had to rely on throughout, the, throughout our history is our relationship with God and the love of God and the awareness of God. But even in that awareness of God and our worship and our praise of, of the historic mainline black church, poverty is that one taboo subject, Kelly that nobody right. wants to talk about. Wants to talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Because we always yeah. have that thing that we don't want to admit that we're financially deprived or financially um, insecure. There's no financial sure. security in our household or in our community. We don't want to talk about it. So we always want to, uh, uh, in the essence, you know, camouflage it or, or, or put on the facade that everything's okay. And it's something right. that we do spiritually in the black church anyway. We don't want people to know that we're hurting, we're depressed. Sure. So we always right. hide it and camouflage it. So it's interesting that you say that, that the church is that that um, uh, institution that's there for us, but yet it's that same institution that causes us to even um, uh, downplay it or not even uh, really open up and seek it. I, I agree. Um, uh, a, a good portion of my focus as a scholar and and as a preacher revolves around what what we term black liberation theology and so J. D. Otis Roberts, James Otis Roberts is a first generation uh, black liberation theologian and his work revolves around uh, um, the black community and poverty and, and the church and reconciliation and so on and so forth and so he he sees the black church as the one political he sees the church as a political institution let me let me stop let me just kind of explain that he sees the church as a political institution and and one right. that is poised to implement liberation um to the black 
community. When I say liberation, I'm not just talking about changing the whole world or changing our economic, social, political situations. He's saying that 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 the number one priority of the black church should be to minister um, to the black communities and provide services and goods to the black poor. You know, the liberation is such an ugly. A monotonous kind of conversation is something that's not going to happen overnight, but it's certainly something that we can dream about, we can talk about, and bring awareness um, to. Because you know, when you think about the black community, whereas W. E. B. Du Bois stated that racism was the preeminent problem um, in in the United States of America of the 20th century, I'm arguing that poverty is now the preeminent problem in black America in in, in the United States. And so, and you I, know, what, what, and what, I, what I are think the options? you're actually doing that, yeah. Yeah, and, and I thank Kelly, and I, I apologize for cutting you off, but my thing is what other options do we have? We work for low wages. Mm-hmm. Our salaries are not much across the board. I was just reading an article on, on yesterday where it stated that almost 35% of all black people in the United States of America are poor. And and I'm willing to argue that the, the, the number is probably higher than that. Higher you know, than considering, that, exactly. Con- considering the poverty line, considering – who is is over the statistics? Who's doing the research? How much money Correct. does a, a family need to make per year, right. per capita, right. in terms of their income and their savings and their checking account? I'm <laughs> willing to bet, and I'm going to go on a limb here, but I'm going to speak prophetically. I'm willing to bet that almost 45 percent of all black people in the United States of America are economically poor. And if that is the case, then we are certainly an oppressed group of people. We certainly are, and and I, I'm going to take it, but I'm going to also try to reverse it because I don't want you to be too right with that number. Sure. But I sure, also recognize, sure. <laughs> I also yeah, recognize yeah. <laughs> that that's the reality that we might have to face. So we'll take the prophetic no, no uh, utterance, but we're going to hope that it's not that bad because yes, the sir. truth of the matter is, is that back in the day, especially in places like Kentucky, where you're from sure. and places like Ohio and 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 we say the Midwest or rural America, uh, but even urban America before they termed it really urban America, the church was the hub of the black community. Everything exactly. passed yeah. through the church. Everything passed through that pastor, and he knew he had his hands on everything and everybody, and they came sure. to him. They, it, you yeah. know, if you was running for office, you had to go to that pastor and get the blessing. You had to go yeah, through that the, church hall and get that blessing, and that's not the case any longer. No, it's not. The old the old song of the church says that Jesus, you're the center of my joy. Okay, and, and back in the day, the 19th century black church leading to the 20th and 21st century, the black church has been the center of the black community's joy. The black churches has been at the heart of just about everything that goes on in the black community, politically, socially, economically, educationally, exactly. spiritually, exactly. culturally, right. you know, just whatever's going on in the black community, historically speaking, the church, the black church has had its hand on it. But but for some strange reason, you know, something happened in the 20th century, Kelly, whereas, you know, we, we became prosperity minded you know we be, we began to look at at, at 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 our material goods and and counting up the cost and, and counting our pennies and our dimes and nickels to see where we fit in in the financial and economic hierarchy of the country and what we're finding after we're done counting what few crumbs a lot of us have we realize Kelly that we're still poor and, and right. we're still economically oppressed. And so the black church's conversation about poverty in the 21st century is, is if it's not null and void, it's certainly taboo. 
you know, we've been very quiet, very lethargic, very hesitant. Well, what that it, means is that it's one of those it, things it, yeah. that we do, Pastor. Isn't it one of those things where, um, uh, with the with the prosperity ministries in in the in the true form of of those ministries that always preach and talk about prosperity, that we want to say that you know, as 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 long as we pray about it, and as long as you know, we ask God for it, it's going to happen. And sure, sure, we get sure. we get this this complacency or this this um, central belief that if if I just pray for it and I just pray for it and pray about it that you know he's going to answer my prayer and therefore he'll take me out of the you know he'll give me what I want because he wants me to have the desires of my heart but we forget sure. about the other parts of those um, scriptures where it requires us to do some things too exactly. Exactly, exactly. And, and there is a great responsibility to being economically self-sufficient. One of the old rituals of institutional slavery in the United States of America was that the slave master made sure that the slave understood that, number one, they were not worthy of education, right. and number two, that they were not worthy of economic self-sufficiency. And so, so, so what happens is that you know, we, we depend on God for 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 our total liberation. We depend on God to bring us out of what we're going through. We depend on God to take us through things and hopefully find a way to bring us out. But but I I believe just like you said um, poignantly here throughout this conversation is that we have to learn how to participate in our own liberation. Right. We have to learn how to participate in 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 forming <clears throat> our communities and participate in in bringing awareness and to, to to the issues of justice and the issues of 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 economic equality and the issues of of building up our neighborhoods. Certainly, gentrification and globalization now taking place in a lot of our neighborhoods. But at the end of the day, black folk are still economically poor. The, you know, the, the poverty situation is not changing. Everything <clears throat> around us could change, Kelly, but for some strange reason, you know, we're still broke as a joke. You know, we still struggle economically. We struggle Correct. to pay our bills on a monthly basis. We struggle to for the upkeep of a car or health insurance. Maintain the credit ratings. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's still a struggle and poverty. You know, it, it I describe poverty in my dissertation. I describe poverty in my presentations and my lectures as a destroyer of black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and and it's a kill. I know a lot of families. He's here in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Tennessee, the Jim Crow South, Georgia, <laughs> Florida, Louisiana, so on and so forth. I know a lot of black families that have lived and died in poverty. Right. You know, it, it, right. it's not a thing where we, 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 we're so blind to it because we see it every day. We live it every day. We experience it every day. But certainly with the black church and with politicians as well. It's not just the preachers. It's politicians. Right. Yeah. You know, hardly ever hear I hardly ever hear elected politicians say anything about Discuss the lower talk class about poverty. Yeah. or the underserved yeah. or those who are, are broken and well, can't afford to live. It and they so talk so about it, but they don't talk about it from a poverty-stricken uh, sure. uh, verbiage or language. They always talk or speak that you know those who are, are underserved or those who you know are, are hard to afford this or hard to afford that. But there right. has not been any um, uh, economic policies directly aligning or directly attached to the poverty rate and the issue exactly. of poverty, uh, exactly. which needs to happen. Because when you look at housing, you look at just costs and things that are going up each and every uh, uh, year, each and every day. It's something that right. we need to, to really address. I'm going to take a quick break, and I'm going to um, – 
and we're going to welcome our, our our other guests on on onto the show. But I want to uh, talk about these two things that are going to be related because one of the other uh, things that we need to address is the profit and punishment uh, sure. with our prison system. Because yes. what you're talking about, Pastor, is the poverty that we live in, which ultimately then turns into a cycle that we have to then deal with from a uh, judicial standpoint and a social yes, justice and an economic justice standpoint, which uh, gets us into this uh, profit for prison. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. The bare necessities of healthy living are easier than you think. You better believe it. It all starts with the right balance of being active and eating well. You eat air? You're going to love the way they tickle. And the food pyramid shows you the way. With just the right amount of exercise and the necessary grains, vegetables, fruits, milk, and meats and beans to keep you and your family on a path to good health. Just the bare necessities of life. Just remember, every food group every day. Crazy. Start by taking small steps. Steps that add up to a happier, healthier life. Try making half your grains whole. Or start adding fruit to breakfast. Me and Baloo, we've got things to do. So eat right. Have a banana. Be active. Now move. That's it. And have lots of fun. Yeah, man. For your own path to a healthier you, visit MyPyramid.gov. Oh, man. This is really living. This message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Ag Council. How's your lunch? Mm, good, Dad, but not as good as the sandwiches you used to make. Really? Sure. Remember how you'd melt the cheese first and dry the pickles on a paper towel so they didn't make the bread soggy? Oh, and then you'd cut it into four pieces with no crust? I did all that. <laughs> Jeez, Dad. How would anyone forget something like that? You never know which moments will be the ones they'll remember forever. So take time to be a dad today. Learn more at one eight seven seven for dad 411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source for the social, economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0143 and share your viewpoint at 516-590-0143. Now, back to your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams, and my guest tonight is Reverend Dr. Um, Darwin Adams I., and uh, he is the author of the Black Poverty article that uh, you'll find in this issue of uh, Black Politics Today. <clears throat> uh, we'll be releasing that digitally uh, this week, and you'll be able to enjoy and, and get a, a taste of, of what he talks about our, our preachers and our politicians must address uh, here in the Black community. And joining us now is another author, <clears throat> Excuse me, another, uh, um, <clears throat> my God, this this whole week I've been uh, ripping and running so much that uh, I may have uh, caught uh, a cold or something, so my voice is uh, a little uh, 
raspy, so I apologize that to our listeners. But another guest is joining us tonight, uh, Nia Simmons. Uh, she's a DMV native, or for those of you who aren't in a DMV, a DC native, uh, who loves comics, dancing, writing. Uh, she's a graduate of Spelman, Spelman College with a BA in English and a double minor in creative writing and dance. And she teaches ballet, jazz, and modern dance. And she's a volunteer at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art. She is the author of The Prophet of Punishment, Money and Corruption in the Private Prison Industry, uh, which is also uh, one of our featured articles in the Black Politics Today magazine for this month's issue. Welcome to the show, Nia. Hi, welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Thanks for having me. Mr. Oh, thank you for thank you for taking the time out to to join us um, on uh, on this afternoon and and joining uh, uh, Dr. Adams with us as well. So I want to uh, talk to you. You you've heard part of our conversation uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Adams and discussing um, poverty and how poverty is impacting our church, but are impacting our community and what our church responsibility is. Talk to us about uh, the profit and punishment, because uh, this is a fascinating article that you put together. And I like how you started out with Ava DuVernay's uh, Netflix 13th Amendment. Uh, what prompted you to start with that in, in the article and how do you see that impacting what you were discussing as, as uh, in the profit and, pro- and punishment? Well, um I just immediately thought of that um, just because I followed Ava DuVernay before she, um, I don't want to say a breakout star, but before she had, you know, the big wrinkle in time movie before uh, 13th came out um, on Netflix, I actually was, was taking a film class and I just got interested in her, a lot of her short films. She had a film with um, uh, Sally Richardson or Sarah Richardson, I don't know, and uh, Amari Hardwick called I Will Follow. I was just a, a fan of her work as a, black filmmaker and as um, the stories that she told, the narratives that she was giving of, of black families and black um, stories and black people. So I was already kind of in tune with who she was as a filmmaker. And then, you know, obviously her, her um, documentary on Netflix 13th, I, I watched that and I was, I was moved by that. It kind of made sense. Um, um, so I started off with that because it really highlights the point or there's a part in the, or there's a big chunk of the um, documentary that highlights how prison became a substitute for slavery. Because um, going back to the Civil War era, and um, at the end of the Civil War, the the South had to find a different uh, economic uh, business. You know, slavery was a business for them. It might not have been a, a big profit, but it was it was a profit. They they profited off of uh, black bodies, black people doing all the work and not getting paid for it. So once slavery ended, they had to find another economic resource. And uh, the prison system became a way for them to kind of make up for that economic resource that they were losing with slavery, with holding people enslaved. And she points out in the documentary how the 13th Amendment had this loophole. And... (laughs) The funny thing is, I um, my mother's a lawyer. I think I, through osmosis, I've been kind of I know how to like read in between the lines or kind of look at details or something of that nature. But with that loophole, that gave uh, slave owners or the people of the South the right to say, okay, if they if somebody does something bad, they can now we can now force them to work 
in any way, shape, or form, whether that's in a factory, whether that's in the field, we can force them to work, and then we can profit off of them working, but under the guise of us punishing them. So I, I know in my article I mentioned how some of the black codes that of, of like loitering and you can't do, you can't go this place, you can't go that place, you can't talk, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Um, after the, the reconstruction during the reconstruction era, how that, that was used against black people to then in, you know put them into these uh the, these prison systems and continue on slavery. It's almost like they never slavery never left. It was just done under a new guise. So. Yeah, very much so. And there was an article, or excuse me, there's a docu uh, 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 show this what, two Sundays ago that I talked to uh, Sheriff Burkhead about, which was Lester Hope did um, on the prison industry and, and the punishment mm-hmm. and the idea that, you know, punishment isn't doing anything for the benefit of the country itself in terms of reducing crime. It's actually increasing crime because it's punishment rather than rehabilitation and how much it's costing uh, state governments in America to even be able to keep people in prison and how much it's costing us. And in Louisiana, uh, uh, I can't remember the jail right now, but it's well-renowned, um, uh, well-renowned for its, its uh, uh, harshness and its punishment. Um, and they're talking about now how they're looking at trying to reduce the number of folks in prison. But you make a great point of being uh, uh, using the prison system as, a, as another tool of uh, enslavement, but also another tool of free labor. Because I think uh, in this in this uh, series that Lester Holt did, the prisoners make like a dollar twenty cents, either a day or an hour, or something ridiculous. Um, but yet they're producing things that are making the, the prison and the, the folks who are contracting and build, buying out from the prison millions of dollars a year because of the products that they're producing. But yet they're mm-hmm. doing that uh, uh, for pennies, pennies yeah. on the dollar. Um, yeah, and so, so I know there's a that, couple. Yeah. Go ahead. Me, I'm so sorry. No, go um, ahead. I do know there was a couple of articles about um, – that I read up that kind of came out um, about how it was like Victoria's Secret and American Apparel or somebody like that. I don't want to, you know, say in terms of like they were doing it, but there was like stores like those that were using slave, like using a uh, prisoner labor. And, you know, we're, we're so used to hearing about a factory fire over in India um, where the, the child labor laws are, are very lax. But then over here, we, you know, we don't know certain, certain clothing companies that are over here will use prison labor as well. Like, you know, and uh, so you have people that are able to profit, you know, make, make money. And so you have these companies that are making money. A lot of these companies are, um, have always been making money. They've been, they're kind of like the Vanderbilt, you know, you hear about the Vanderbilt, you're thinking of old family money, you're thinking of old families that have built, um, or that have invested in very long-lasting entities within America, and the prison system is just one of those entities that have their hands in many, many pockets, you know, have their hands in many places to, um, to profit off of this. And you talk about um, one of the companies, um, uh, GEO and then mm-hmm. uh, the uh, MTC, and a few in others, but the uh, right in Core Civic, and how their 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 thing is bed quotas. So they actually are going to the state 
saying that you have to guarantee us so many prisoners per year. Otherwise, you have to pay us X number of dollars because we don't have the bed quota. And so we've created this system where you are actually funneling people to prison just to make sure that the state doesn't have to pay a fine to a private entity for the people that they're putting in jail. Yeah, and that's the bad crazy. part. It's, it's a legal binding, like a contract. It is legal. It is binding. You have to, they, they have to follow it unless, or they have to do a payout, right. which, again, right. also affects the, the, um, the, <laughs> the, 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 the state says we, we don't want to we don't want to continue this contract. You know, we end a contract. You you have to also pay money. If you don't fall through with the contract, you have to pay right. money either Breach way. Breach of contract. It, it, right. Yeah. So, um, but that also, what, what that also does is that kind of puts a top down when you talk about police brutality. And that, that that's the thing. This feeds into many other, uh, the things that go on in the African-American community and people of color where um, now it's, you have uh a top-down pressure. You have the pressure, you know, the, the, the state is getting pressure from these private companies to fill their bed quotas. And so what does the state do? The state creates these criminal laws, and, you know, if you're caught with this, you get fined for that, or you get a day in jail for here, there. And now it's becoming over, you, you get overly punished. Um, so, right. you, or even if you look, at, look back in New York and the whole stop and frisk thing that happened in New York, you could easily see that as a, as a policy, uh, as a, a policy against crime, but it was a policy against crime that could benefit, say, these bed quotas, because if you were found guilty of something or if you match the description of something or, or whatnot, they would stop for a few if you're doing anything wrong, and they'll say, oh, we're taking you in because you jaywalked, or we're taking you in because you have an, an ounce of weed, or we're taking you in because we you match the description, so you spend a night in jail. You know, it's, it's things of that nature. And then you, you hear stories like um, that young man who went to Rikers, who uh, unfortunately he was innocent, and but instead right. of um, putting him in a regular jail, like you have stories of that where it's like they might not even be, uh, they might not be guilty of it, or they're awaiting trial, or they're they're waiting something they're not, you know, and they're get they're getting put in prison even though they're not necessarily guilty or convicted of doing something actually wrong. So, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a cycle. It, it's a cycle of, okay, we got to fill these beds. So what do we do? We create policies that, you know, over-police people. And, and unfortunately, our community <coughs> is one of, those, is one of the, the communities that they're over-policing. And then we're because they're over-police people, they're, they're funneling people into, the, into these prisons. And, you know, people are they're, they're get, they're gaining a profit off of it. And it's um, something that uh, they talked about um, uh, Pastor uh, Adams is something that we um, just recently um, Democratic candidate Kamala Harris talked about with her new crime initiative that she's looking to do is the idea of profit in prisons, <clears throat> which is something that's always been crazy to me. Um, why would you? Because in I, me being from California, the the um, state ran the prison system. And then sometime in, I think it was <clears throat> early, mid-2000s, that's when they switched over, when they downsized and they basically combined the California Highway Patrol with the, um, uh, I think it's the California Correctional Officers because you had the, the, the state police handling the jails and the sheriffs and things like that were handling mm-hmm. the jails and the prisons. And then um, when they downsized or they 
cut the budgets of, of law enforcement. So they combine the highway patrol, they combine the state police, and they combine the correctional officers. So they're now they're all in one group. And then they start turning the prisons over to the private, you know, to private businesses. I mean, in that in and of itself, it's just ludicrous to me to understand that if you're that particular entity right there in terms of, of jail and punishment, that creates a profit market for the individual to make sure that they have everybody in there. There's no incentive for them to reduce crime if you have a private business running the prison system. And it goes back to what you your article talks about in the poverty and the the correlation between poverty in our community and our uh, rates of incarceration. They're like hand in hand. They're, they're, they're the glove that's on the hand and that's what's and creating this 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 uh, incentive and this increase in this prison population, and and I, and I do I want to pause for a minute to compliment the young lady on the phone. The article that you wrote in in the Black Politics Today magazine was phenomenal. It was a beautiful, oh. beautiful oh, wow, read, thank you. outstanding. Yeah, outstanding analysis, spot on match. But no, Kelly, you're right. You know, and um, you know, such a large percentage of of African Americans who make up. Uh, uh, this this quote unquote mass incarceration system, you know, and and one of the major reasons why there's so many black people who are incarcerated or have been jailed for whatever reason is because you know they, they're poor, you know they they, they can't afford right. a lawyer, you know they they get a legal <clears throat> advisor, or, you know, but but they can't pay fines and they can't pay fees and you know they they they, they can't pay for rehab, you know, and, and it's a struggle. It's it's a great Great struggle, and, and, and a large percent of those who are already jailed and incarcerated, you know, they, you know, they they've struggled with 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 issues of poverty, generational poverty, intergenerational poverty, deep poverty, abject poverty. You know, poverty is just it, it it brings down their level of life, their quality of life, and it makes it easy for the justice system to take advantage of them. It really does. I'm, I was um, thinking of this movie that just recently came out. Um, Davis, um, um, <clears throat> the football player, he, he ended up playing for Atlanta. And um, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think of his name. Brian, Brian Davis, I think it is. Um, Brian Banks, <clears throat> maybe. I'm not sure. Brian Banks. Thank you. Brian Banks. Right. Sure. And I went, to, I went to go see that movie, and he had a public defender, mm-hmm. African-American woman, who said, take the deal. Because if you don't take the deal, they're going to put you away for life. They had no DNA. They had nothing corroborating anything that was accused of him. He was accused of rape. Uh, Had no DNA, had no kits, had no nothing. Yet the prosecutor was, excuse me, was still going to prosecute. And his public defender said, take the deal, do six years, you'll be out. But this guy was on his way to USC on a football scholarship to Pepper Pete Carroll, you know, was promising, 16 years old. He takes a deal, goes to jail for seven years, then comes out, and ultimately his his record is expunged, and he, you know, they, they do it, but it took him another three years to do that. And what you just said, Pastor, is just that, is that because we don't have the financial capacity or ability to actually hire attorneys that will actually – you know, we can hold them accountable for our defense. We get a public defender 
who then is like, well, just take the deal because it's easy for you to take the deal. Let's work for me to try to actually investigate and get you out of this. And if you just do a little bit of time, you get out, you're good to go. You still have your life ahead of you. And it's always that threat of if you don't do it, they're going to put you away for life. And those are hard choices for a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, or 18-year-old to have to make. I mean, let's think back to the Central Park Five. Mm-hmm. The decisions and the things that, you know, you had to think about, these are 14-, 15-year-old kids who sure. have no capacity of understanding what's going on, and yet they have to sit there and try to assist in their defense um, but have no ability to do so. <clears throat> and they end up in something like this, a profit prison, where they are literally um, uh, beaten and 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 taken and and actually made worse than they were when they came in. Sure, sure, uh, Kelly. One of the preeminent texts that's out there now on, on mass incarceration <clears throat> and inequality and so on and so forth is a book by um, um, Michelle Williams, and, and the book is is called right. The New Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow, mm-hmm. right? The new yeah. Jim, Michelle Alexander. I'm sorry, it's not Michelle Williams. It's Michelle Alexander. Alexander. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and she she speaks to that issue in 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 with with a with, with a great nuance and a finger towards uh, the truth of the situation. And, and she, you know she she highlights you know the, the the issues of inequity and inequality amongst black people who are charged with crimes or charged with misdemeanors or charged with whatever, and and do not have the financial and economic wherewithal to to defend themselves and, and hire a lawyer or, or even make a statement. And, and so, you know, what that means is that, you know, whether they're innocent or guilty is not really the issue. It's it's their skin color that really matters. And then their skin color becomes their economic situation. So poverty is, is not only this quote-unquote lack of education, but poverty is a lack of resources, a lack of connectivity, a lack of awareness, and so on and so forth. And so that, that book speaks to, to this conversation in a very – uh, a very deep you know, uh, capacity in a way, and so you know, again, the article that this young lady wrote, you know, is, is closely related to to what I'm talking about. Black poverty has a theological issue for sure. Yeah. Right, and and one of the things that um, Nia that um, uh, we talked about when you were in the process of doing this was the judge out of Pennsylvania who yeah. uh, was got convicted um, and is now up on appeal. Um, and, and apparently may even get an appeal and a reduced sentence, um, for basically funneling kids and getting kicked back to prison. He was funneling yeah. kids, um, to prison, got paid some, you know, 20, $30 million over a course of like about 10 years, uh, got sentenced to like 30 years in prison. And now is on appeal, and and actually, I think it's this year or late last year, is is up for probably a new trial or something. Yeah, I, I remember when I was researching that because um, it <clears throat> happened like in 2009, around 2011, uh, right, 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 right between there. A judge, I think, is uh, Mark A. Chiavarella, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. He he basically was was funneling people in, and that's that's where when we talk about the political side of it as well, we talk about, you know, especially with this upcoming election and policy and things of that nature. Um, I remember um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, I remember her talking about getting money out of politics. And this is one of those, this is one of those things. This is one of those 
you know, ways where money and politics a lot of times plays a role because he's getting kickbacks from these private companies. And he's, he's right. an elected official, mind you. He's, he's right. a public official. He's, he was elected to this position as judge by the people of that county. And right. he's collecting private money from this private prison to send people to this jail so they can keep up their quota. And, you know, we, if we don't keep in, it, while it might be illegal, you, it kind of extends to things like lobbying. It extends to saying who, who is, what company, what private company, private entity is putting money in people's pockets. Um, you know, like, like how, like how, how are their pockets lined? What is their bank account looking like? You know, cause those are the people they're going to vote that way. They're going to move and operate and create uh, policy that exactly. way based exactly. off of whose who right. interests that they have. So yep. that that was the crazy thing about that article was just that no, it it wasn't about so much doing the right thing and whether or not these uh, these kids did the right thing and things of that nature. Um, and it also reminded me of the the prosecutor, the prosecutor for um, the George Zimmerman case and mm-hmm. uh, Trayvon Martin, and how everybody's sitting back and we know he did it and you know we're sitting back like how can you uh, claim um standing your ground when you went to go actually like after that the after right you followed and that's the thing he, right. yeah it, it, he was a boy he went after that boy and i'm sitting back and saying well why if he was in such danger and he was getting beat up it was just like well why couldn't we say that trayvon martin was standing his ground from a from exactly. a random stranger who right. uh, who just decided to attack him and he didn't know. Granted, unfortunately, he he was um, he he had passed on. He he had died from that encounter, and he wasn't there to defend himself. But there were so many times where I'm sitting back and thinking, why couldn't she have used that as a as, as something to say he was in the wrong and saying that Trayvon Martin was defending himself against this random attacker? But then I look back, and you actually you know they did a special. And they looked into her record. And how she had a habit of sending Latino and black kids to jail. They did not have um, legal representation or a, a guardian. They did not have a, right. a child advocate there with them. And unfortunately, right. that just falls on to the, the, the social, well, remember uh, psychological Well, she wasn't going to prosecute in the first place. She wasn't going to prosecute yeah, in the first was, place. Only because yeah. of the uproar and all of the, the uh, media attention that she decided to prosecute. But then, like you said, you have to put together a case. You have to put it together, and you have to investigate it and decide how you're she going to prosecute. And exactly. She, she and unfortunately, and, yeah, that 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 happens. And I and I and you, you see it all the time. It always yeah. happens in our case. It always happens when we are the victim, or if we are the even if we are the the, the suspect. Um, there's going to be an extensive background and everything is going to happen where we're going to make sure we put this person away for life. We're going to put this person even... And it's, and it's quick, even, too. Yeah. Right. I mean, you look yeah. at things look like at, you have people who have a drug charge that's usually supposed to be five years, but they get 10, right. and then you have an act like possession, not they even, not even selling it. Right. Yeah, they, but they then they you have an actual cocaine drug dealer. Going, yeah. who's supposed to get twenty? Who gets well, off with? Getting, he um, has powder. Well, that's because he has powder. He didn't have crack. That's because he was white. He wasn't black. So he was doing, yeah. and he was doing it in upstate, you know, New York or in Boston. He wasn't doing it in D.C. and Southeast. So you know, sure, those are sure. the things that you have to deal with. And Pastor, now look at it from this standpoint. You talk about from poverty 
to prison because the, the we we talk about this pipeline all the time, and we talk right. about how we cannot profit because I'm looking at as I as I read and reviewed uh, Nia's article, she talked about how states invest in prisons and their sure. their retirement funds. I mean, their retirements are invested in these prisons. The money that these prisons make you know, become in, invested in Wall Street and, and, and so many other entities that it is so, excuse me, it's so um, uh, uh, gross in its, in its um, 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 you know, secrecy in some cases that, you know, it's like, oh, well, these prisons are taking the state's money and then using it to invest so that the state um, uh, workers are getting benefits from the 401ks and things of that nature that the prisons are making. So the prison's profits are being disseminated or distributed back to the state and through their workers because the state's investing in them. Sure, sure. And, and I, you make a great point and um, kind of confirms what, what I've been thinking for a while, um, Kelly, is that, is that it, black poverty, poverty in America's black communities, are, it's not just a theological issue. You read my article, it's a, it's a political issue. And and, 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 and so what? The, yeah. So what, and so what that means for me? Let's just say in the state of Ohio, or in the state of Pennsylvania, or so on and so forth. You know, they're building brand new prisons for kids who are struggling in kindergarten, in first grade, in mm-hmm. second grade, who can't make a certain score in reading or in math, or so on and so forth. So what they're saying is that they're pipelining these young people, many of which are African American, many of which are poor, many of which are disenfranchised, many of which are displaced. They're pipelining them and forecasting that their future will be one of incarceration and one of of being jailed because they can't pass a kindergarten test or a third grade test. A lot of these kids get, get are being held back in kindergarten and they're being held back again in the third grade yeah. because they can't pass a certain test. So by the time they graduate or even, you know, have the opportunity to graduate, they're 20, 21, some are 22 years old. You can imagine, you know, what this does. Well, you know, they they already they already take and uh the 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 schools and they figure if they're not able to read, write or do math or arithmetic by the 4th grade, they've sure. already determined that they're going to end up in the prison system and what they're going to do. Exactly. So they they already have their statistics. They know exactly what's going to happen. They know exactly where they're going to be, and they're preparing for that. And so that's why you do see them building prisons now. And they say, well, why are they building prisons when this prison is in school? Right, instead of right. improving schools. You already know what's coming next, and I'm gonna take a real quick break. As we come back, we're gonna we're gonna conclude, but I'm gonna take just a, a a a break announcement and come back and talk about what's at stake for us, what's at stake for us in our poverty in our church, but also what's at stake for us in our profit of these pun- um, our punishment in these prisons. We'll be right back. You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics, and your source for the social economic, and political impact on the African-American community. So join the conversation at 516-590-0140. If you're not facing your mortgage issues, This can be the most terrifying sound in the world. 
It means you've fallen behind. It means hope is dwindling. It means you're another call closer to losing your home to foreclosure. Fortunately, there's hope. If you need real help and guidance, call 1-888-995-HOPE. That's 1-888-995-4673. Because nothing is worse than doing nothing. A public service announcement brought to you by NeighborWorks, the Ad Council, and this station. Yes, Marvin Gaye said it. We've got to find our way. What's going on? And there's a whole lot going on for us here in America uh, for everything that we have to do. I'm your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show, Black Politics Today. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 516-590-0143. That's 516-590-0143. Join us back on the show is my guest, Reverend uh, Darvin Adams. Excuse me, Reverend Darvin Adams the first. He is one of the authors in, of uh, our articles in uh, Black Politics Today magazine uh, this month, The Black Poverty, uh, What Our Preachers and Politicians Must Address. And then also joining us is Nia Simmons. <clears throat> Excuse me. She is also, also one of our contributors. Uh, and her article is The Profit of Punishment, the Money and Corruption in Private Prison Industry and the Impact that That Has on the African-American Community. So, um, Mia, let me go to you and, and talk to you about what's at stake for us, because as I, I pointed out uh, before the break with, with uh, Dr. Adams is, and, and you and I talked about Jeff um, uh, Cervarelli Cer, Cer and, and the mm-hmm. impact that he has had, uh, the impact that these prisons have had on our community. What's at stake? What's at stake for black America? Well, what's at stake is... Um, I don't know if, any, if anybody's listening from uh, PG County. We know that our uh, public school system, the only way we get good education is to go to a private school. And our public school systems are um, very much lacking. And because, unfortunately, a lot of that money is going to um, private prisons or the state having to accommodate for private prisons or to accommodate for a settlement or things of that nature. So usually what happens is when when you give money to say something like this, that's taking public funds, it's taking money away from things that could have worked out. So before the break, we talked about how um, there's already a pipeline of, you know, kids of a certain age can't, you know, meet the standardized test. They already have this facility, this private facility that's almost like a prison, that's basically prison set up for them 
to to help fix that. But at the same time, it's it's money that could have went into getting a better school system. It's money that could go into infrastructure. Um, it, it just it takes money that could be helping the state, the people, the communities um, within a state or within a within a county. And unfortunately, that's going to the pockets of um, these individuals who own these companies, who own these private companies. And there's also not going to be uh, change, like you said before, there's not going to be actual change in, um, uh, like, change when we're looking at criminal policy, when we're looking at policy um, tackling uh, and curbing uh, criminal activity. Nobody's going to go to a prison just to sit there instead of focusing on rehabilitation and putting people back out into um, society as functioning members of society who are able to get a job, who are able to, you know, who aren't going to relapse, um, who don't have to befall the, the system of um, having a, a parole officer and then having all these things on their record and then going back to jail and then sitting in the private prison and be, getting, getting caught up back in the system, which is, again, putting more money in their pockets instead of, you know, rehabilitation. We're just going to keep putting money in these private prisons, putting money in the, 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 the pockets of these CEOs, and we're not going to have any benefit from it. Uh, people aren't going to rehabilitate themselves. They're not going to come back out of prison and become functioning members of society. They're, you know, we're not going to have a better school system. We're not going to have better infrastructure. It affects everything if the, the state is so focused on um, meeting the contract with these, with these companies. Yeah, and it's not going to make them taxpayers. It's going to make them tax liabilities or tax burdens. Pastor, yeah. um, what what do we have to look forward to from our black churches in addressing the issue of poverty, and what's at stake for us with the issue of poverty? Well, I, I, I kind of answer your question in the order that it was given. I'm hoping that I'm praying that the black church, the institutional church, the non-denominational church, um, that are located and, and, and situated in, in America's black communities. I'm hoping that, that, that they make a commitment to taking the ministry of Jesus Christ beyond the four walls. You know, I'm hoping that they're, they're, they're um, conversing about and considering the social mission, the economic mission, the political mission, the educational mission, the spiritual mission of the church and what it means to minister to those who are struggling um, in their surrounding neighborhoods and their surrounding communities and in their families beyond those who are members of the church. And I'm hoping and praying that the church takes the mission seriously enough to where they'll go beyond the confines of their building or go beyond the confines of their denominational heritage or go beyond the confines of what they've always known and what they always did and, and consider uh, being radical for Jesus and being radical for those who are struggling with the issue of economic poverty. Poverty, as I understand it, it means that, that, that the future of our young people is at stake, our livelihood, our, our, um, our existence, our, our souls, you know, and, and Aretha Franklin, our souls are at stake because, because the way that we're going in, in maybe 10 or 20 years, you know, 
black people, we're not going to have anything. We we don't own a lot of businesses. We don't have a lot of equity in our banks and uh, a, a lot of, of 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 heritage in our community where money and finances are concerned. We must bring uh, awareness to those who don't understand how poverty destroys the livelihood of black and brown people. We have to have conversations. We got to talk to the institutions. We got to talk to the schools. We got to talk to the politicians. We got to talk to the local governments. We have to talk to our young people. Here in Hopkinsville is a great example of uh, nuancing what the young lady just said earlier. Our public school system is struggling really badly as well. And part of the reason they don't want to build new buildings and, and put resources and new books and, 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 and train teachers into our buildings is because they know that the majority of kids in our public school system are poor black kids. Nobody wants to care for them. Nobody wants to talk about them. Nobody wants to, to train them and teach them. They want to go to the, the private sector and, and make a little bit more money and, and deal with you know other races of kids and so on and so forth. I think now is the time for us to stand up and, and, and take a stand because I think that our livelihood, our life is on the line, Kelly. I really do. And I, I, I typically end with that question, what's at stake, but there was something that you said that, that caught me because – I had intended to talk about the institutional racism that we're trying to overcome that, you know, uh, uh, contributes to the poverty that, you know, the systemic racism that contributes to poverty, the idea that uh, a black woman is only making 64 cents of the dollar compared to a white woman and, and, you know, a, a black man, you know, his, you know, 72 cents to the white man's, you know, full dollar. Um, sure. Those things mm-hmm. continue to impact, which have also impact from the, the, the prison side of things, but the poverty side of things even more so. And um, it's, it's those things that we don't, we don't want to address it so much because on one hand, it's always the thing that, Oh, we always want to say it's always racism. <clears throat> Right, but right. the truth of the matter is, is that when it is systemic, when it's been institutionalized, and now it becomes policy, and just because it's not affecting you that way doesn't mean that it was not created and designed. As as Nia pointed out very eloquently, is that the sure. black codes became the Jim Crow laws, which became the laws that are on the books that stayed there and have stayed there until they decided to change the law or amend the law, but there's still the people who are in the positions who are doing, you know, the work, you know, until you can really die out. Right. Until you can die out all of those tendencies and hope that the person that's coming in new wasn't one of those relatives (laughs) of those tendencies, you have that same problem. Um, so I want to I want to end I want to end with this because uh, what you talked about, uh, Dr. Lewis Brogdon, uh, the article right behind your article is the Black sure. Clergy Political Engagement Guide, and he put yeah. together a, a a political engagement guide to help Black churches understand exactly what they needed to do or how they needed to go about yeah. creating and putting article. together a political strategy for the community uh, for their congregation. Uh, to expand out of the four walls that you talked about so that they can reach the community and develop and and sort of re-engage themselves as the epicenter of our black community and and getting the pastors to, to to create and, and go into that, those areas. And I would say this, and for those of you who are listening and, 
and will uh, uh, take heed. I would say that if your pastor is not the person uh, to be uh, socially or civically engaged, somebody in the church should be and create that ministry where you get the pastor's blessing. He does not have to necessarily be the face. He just has to give the okay. And if you have the skills and wherewithal, you're an elected official or whatever it is, you need to make sure that there is a civic engagement ministry in your church. Because if I remember correctly, everything that has become law, policy, and everything else is in the Bible. Homelessness is in the Bible. Food security is in the Bible. You know, jobs and economic is in the Bible. All these things that we deal with, everything is in the Bible, and God tells us to do it. And, you know, to, to clothe the least of us, to feed the least of us, to talk about mm-hmm. shelter, to talk about jobs and wages, um, you know, all those things are in the Bible. So it's not exactly. like you have to preach anything other than what's already there. Just address it into gentrification, housing discrimination, poverty yeah. in those areas, and let your people in your congregation know what's going on, but create those ministries so that you can actually do more. You can talk about politics and, I mean, excuse me, you can talk about policy in the church pulpit. And as long as you're not endorsing anybody, you're not going to lose your 501c3. Because what most pastors don't understand is that that 501c3 or the law that they put was about money. It was Mm -hmm. never about talking Mm -hmm. about a candidate. It was always about the money. IRS only deals with money. So right. IRS doesn't deal with the politics. IRS says if you have to raise money, if you're going to your church because they knew it was a, a area where there was a a full set, I mean, like a, a congregation of black folks, a, a powerhouse of area where you can get, you know, two, three hundred people or a thousand people because of our mega churches or 10,000 people. And, you know, if they all get five dollars. Now you're raising fifty, sixty thousand dollars. So if they gave a hundred dollars, right, now right. you're raising a million dollars. They're like, oh no, we can't have that. So if you do any of that, we're gonna take away your five hundred one c three. You're not gonna be tax exempt anymore. But you don't have to sure. worry about that because you can create a CDC, you can create a outside pack, you can do whatever you want to do, and still be able to have that and still talk policy out that pulpit and let people know and educate them. So yeah. that's something that you want to do. Certainly get the this this issue. Legacy issue of Black Politics Today, I said it will be up online this week. Uh, you can certainly subscribe to our annual subscription and uh, get it for 2020, but uh, you can certainly get the individual copies for uh, the next two issues that we have that we will be posting and putting up there. And of course, our printed editions that come out on special occasions and special uh, uh, conventions and conferences. I want to thank my guest tonight, uh, Nia Simmons, uh, author of The Prophet. Uh, in prison, profit for prison, uh, profit of punishment, and then also uh, Dr. Darwin uh, Adams the first for his Black Poverty uh, article tonight. Uh, please thank you both for joining us tonight. I want to uh, thank you for contributing to Black Politics today, and I look forward to your continued support and continued efforts, and of course the stories that you write and how they're impacting us and what they're doing. As I say each and every week. You know, there's always something at stake, and it depends to you and your family what's at stake for you. And I just say to each and every one of you listening tonight, find out what's at stake for you, because once you do, you need to get up each and every morning and go out there and do something about it. As Dr. Adams said and as Nia said, you know, make sure that you are out there doing something to change the dial, 
Don't keep playing the same tune over and over again and accepting the same results. Mm-hmm. Change the dial and get a new tune in your head and get a new operation uh, moving forward. Until next week, if it's social, economic, or political, it's Black Politics Today. I want to thank you again for joining us. We look forward to seeing you and look forward to joining and subscribing to Black Politics Today, the legacy edition of Black Politics Today magazine. Good night, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today on I for What's at Stake in Global Politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Join us live each Monday from 7 to 8 p.m. Until next time, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and download us on iTunes at Black Politics Today. <laughs>